So it's a tough night to preach when you got competition like the Colts game still going on, a beautiful evening, and food trucks, for crying out loud, food trucks, right? So if some of you are like faking to go get communion or use the restroom and we find you back at the food trucks, they will not serve you, okay? So you have to show a card. It's only if you're under the age of 18, all right? So anyway, no, glad that you're here tonight. You know, I want to let you know that I think there's an illness happening in our culture that is probably more contagious and more dangerous than COVID-19. I think it's wreaking havoc in every relationship I see, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in the workplace. You can see it in social media. You can see it in the mainstream media. You can see it if you read the newspaper still. It's causing like just fragmentation in our entire culture, even isolation. And people have referred to it as offensiveness as even like microaggression, even the like cancel culture that we see today kind of speaks of this offendedness that everybody seems to have. I mean, in our culture today, if you don't agree with my opinion or if I disagree with you, we each have the opportunity to be offended. I've seen some t-shirts that says, I'm offended that you're not offended. I mean, that's how rampant this mentality is. I look across our culture today and I realize that there's like over 7.125 billion people that live on planet Earth. And the reality of the chances of you and I meeting somebody who offends us is really, really high. I want to be clear that I'm not talking about like the evil, cruel, hateful things that people do, either intentionally or unintentionally, that victimize people. But what I am saying that there's a difference between being hurt physically or emotionally unintentionally or unintentionally and being offended by something that someone says or does just because we feel, think or behave differently. It's a vicious cycle that's permeated our culture. And we, the followers of Jesus Christ, are left to navigate this crazy world that we live in, especially in such a tentativeness. Well, there's good news. Some helpful words from Jesus are found in John 15. And so if you want to grab a copy of the Bible, open up to John 15. That's where we're going to study tonight to just see how Jesus encourages us to navigate this. Now, let me warn you that by using the word helpful, I do not want you to assume that they're comfortable or even easy words. But I think that you and I need to listen to what Jesus has to say for us in John 15 and help us in this journey of living and loving like Jesus. As you turn there, let me just remind you what's happening in the life and ministry of Jesus. In this moment, he's still in the upper room with his disciples. John is the only gospel that spends like multiple chapters on the dialogue Jesus is having with his followers in this moment. But Jesus has given them some just just some strong things he doesn't want them to uh, forget. It's his last words before he dies. He's told them already to not let their hearts be troubled. He's told them that he's going to go away, but there is a helper that's going to come who is the Holy Spirit. He's told them to stay connected to their source of life like the branches are connected to the vine. He commands them to love the way that he has loved them. And he tells them to remember and obey everything that he's taught them. Now he provides a warning. And we see that recorded by John in chapter 15, beginning in verse 18. Follow along as we read. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to this world, it would love you as its own. But as it is, you do not belong to this world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. 
Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they would obey yours as well. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But as it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. Now, those are some encouraging words, aren't they? I don't see those words posted on like people's walls or T-shirts made with those words. But we have to understand what Jesus is saying in this moment. He's warning us and teaching us how to respond as his followers. Remember, he's continuing to prepare his disciples about, well, about what life looks like after he's gone by telling them what will happen if they decide to follow him faithfully. It's been a message that he's really not shied away from from the beginning of his teachings. And John, from the very opening chapters of his gospel, has showed the reaction people will have to him. John chapter 1, verse 10 and 11 says, he, meaning Jesus, was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Jesus often encountered rejection and resistance to his teachings and his way of life. He was criticized for the miracles he performed, even the mercy and healing that he demonstrated. And now Jesus is warning his followers that they will face the same persecution and hatred that he faced. And he gives two reasons. The first reason is this, that his followers don't belong to this world. He said in verse 19, if you belonged to this world, indicating that they don't. And Jesus says, I've chosen you out of the world. Earlier, just a few sentences earlier, John 15, 16, Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you may go and bear much fruit. Jesus has revealed to his followers a different way of living and loving. And he's invited them into making this their way of life as his disciple. He was constantly telling them and everyone else that his words and his actions match the heart of God. They reveal the character of God. And he expected everyone to follow his example. He reminds them of what he said earlier after washing their feet. He said that no servant is greater than his master. Jesus expects his followers to follow his example in humility in serving others. And now in this moment, he shares with them that he expects them also to follow his example in suffering, in facing persecution. This is a different way of life, he says. Peter picks up on that theme when he writes later in his epistle, describing that we are foreigners and even exiles as we live for God in this world. And Paul stresses that our citizenship is in heaven. Living and loving like Jesus will cause people to hate us because we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And therefore, we think, we believe, we behave differently than the world around us because Jesus is our example as well as he is our master. If you consistently are living and loving like Jesus, then your words and actions will constantly contradict the lifestyles of the world around us. It will inevitably expose their deeds of darkness by bearing the fruit that Jesus referred to earlier in our life. And the result of that will be hatred. We must be sure that this hatred that we see or the the persecution we feel is for the way that we're living like Jesus instead of punishment for sin. 
Peter picks up on that and says in his later epistle, 1 Peter chapter 4, these words. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join with them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. In verse 12, he says this, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be for, as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name. I think Peter is saying as we grow in intimacy and love and obedience to Jesus, then opposition from the world will grow as well. Jesus gives a second reason that we face this kind of uh, persecution. He says, because the world rejects teachings and the works of Jesus. Jesus is clear that those who heard and saw firsthand his words and his miracles rejected him. They were guilty of sin for rejecting his words and his works. He warns us that we really shouldn't expect anything different. In verse 20, it basically says, they will follow you as much as they followed me, Jesus says. This persecution really springs from ignorance, a lack of true understanding who Jesus is, and a failure to recognize that the works and the words he is giving and doing, they come from the Father. And Jesus says there's really no excuse for rejecting them because there is no other way to find truth in life than through him. In verse 25, Jesus quotes Psalm 69. It's a very popular messianic Psalm that, that is quoted many times in the New Testament. And it basically says, they hate me without reason. And Jesus uses that to indicate the foolishness of the choice of those who reject Jesus' identity, his teachings, and his miracles. D.A. Carson says this, rejection of Jesus' words and works is thus the rejection of the clearest light, the fullest revelation, and therefore incurs the most central deep-stained guilt. These verses demand a decision, he says. Following Jesus costs something and may cost life itself. Yet not following Jesus means one is siding with a lost and hateful world. Last weekend, Ross Langston said it this way. Following Jesus is dangerous, but choosing not to follow Jesus is deadly. John, later in his epistle, says something very similar. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 17, John says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Jesus goes on to say some more encouraging words to help us face this hatred from the world. He gave us a warning, but now he gives us a promise. Look at verse 25 and 26 of John 15. 
Jesus said, or 26 and 27, excuse me. When the advocate comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. Jesus makes another reference to this helper who's going to come, the one we know as the Holy Spirit, our counselor. Jeremy Locke, a couple weeks ago, did a great job kind of beginning to lay a foundation of what Jesus has to say about the work of the Holy Spirit recorded by, the, uh, by John. And next weekend, actually, in the rest of John 16, we're going to drive down even deeper in, in understanding how the Holy Spirit works in the lives of those who follow Jesus. In this moment, Jesus is once again reaffirming that the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is to reveal and testify about who Jesus truly is. You can hear the legal allusions that he makes by, by calling the Holy Spirit advocate and talking about his testimony. You and I have the power of the Holy Spirit working in us to confirm the truth about who Jesus is. He teaches us. He illuminates our hearts and minds as we read and study Scripture. We also have the power of the Holy Spirit working through us as we face opposition in the world, as we live and love like Jesus. We're able to endure hatred and persecution because the Holy Spirit is living inside of us and he's helping us to live according to the truth of Jesus, as well as to testify to the truth of Jesus in the world. Several commentators point out that Jesus is not saying that the Holy Spirit will do this work for us. He does this work through us and we relying on his strength he will be able to testify to who Jesus is the Holy Spirit will give us the words to say he'll provide the protection we need and he'll also create opportunities for you and I to testify about Jesus the whole uh, New Testament is is populated with stories of people who did just that especially the book of Acts and one of my favorites is uh, a man named Stephen Think about the early church. It was experiencing rapid growth. The first couple chapters of Acts talk about that. And there became a problem. The problem was that there were so many needs to be cared for. And at the same time, there was a responsibility to teach the gospel and to share the gospel. And so the disciples, the apostles, they were struggling. And so they decided to call a meeting and to reorganize some. They appointed some people who were going to care for the needs of others and others who would preach the gospel. They chose seven people to take care of the needs around them. And one of those people's name was Stephen. I love how the book of Acts describes him. Acts 6 and 7 tell his story. And in Acts chapter 6, listen what it says about Stephen. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. If I was to be described by anybody for any reason, I hope they would not say, well, you know, Phil, he's bow-legged, he's tall and lanky, and he's a rabid UK fan, even in the midst of college football season. I hope that those weren't the descriptions people would use of me. If they would say, you know, you know, Phil, he seems to be full of faith in the Holy Spirit. That would be something that would just really mean a lot to me. I haven't arrived at that. Please know. But that's really a goal that I have in life. Well, listen how this full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit plays out in the life of Stephen. Later in chapter six, it says this. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard this guy Stephen speaking blasphemies against Moses and against God. 
They stirred up other people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place and against the law. We've even heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down for us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Chapter 7 records Stephen's response to these false accusations. I won't read them all to you tonight. I'd encourage you to do that before you go to bed tonight. Listen how he ends his response. In chapter 7, verse 51, Stephen says, You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you've betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law and was given through the angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. I don't know what that really means, but it sounds mean and cruel, doesn't it? Gnash their teeth at them, right? It goes on to say, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their lungs, they rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. When I read about a person like that who stands strong in the face of opposition. I think all of us should be motivated to take courage, to give testimony to who Jesus is by our words and our works. We're strengthened by the Holy Spirit in that moment to do the work, and he's doing his work through us. That's why we have the Holy Spirit living in us. We can face hatred and persecution and stand strong, just like Stephen. That's why Jesus gives us this warning. That's why he gives us this promise of the Holy Spirit. It's for this result that he re John records in Jesus' words, John 16, verses 1 through 4. All this I have told you, Jesus says, so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think that they're offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I've told you this. So when their time comes, you'll remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. Jesus doesn't want his followers to fall away out of faith when hatred and persecution comes. He tells them that they're going to be kicked out of the synagogue, which he's already warned them two other times earlier in the Gospel of John. He also says that they will be killed. And the people who do the killing, they will think they're doing something great for God. You know, did you notice who was approving the stoning of Stephen in Acts 1? It was Saul. Saul, the person that we come to know as Paul later in the New Testament. Not just any old Paul, but the Apostle Paul. He's the most well-known persecutor in the early church who claimed it was his fervor for God and for Judaism that motivated him to do such cruel and evil things toward those who called themselves Christians and followers of Christ. History documents that 10 of the 11 people Jesus is talking to in the upper room that day 
were killed because of their faith in Jesus Christ. The only person not killed for their faith was John, who was doing the writing, and he was exiled. Don't picture like a vacation on the beach when I mean exiled, right? In this moment, we see that persecution is predicted, and we know that it runs rampant all throughout the first century and every century since. It didn't stop in the first century. In fact, documents have shown that today in the 21st century, there's been more persecution in this one century than all of the other 20 centuries before it. There's an organization called Open Door USA, and they document the persecution against Christ, Christ's followers, and his church. And they estimate that 260 million people have faced high levels of persecution. In 2019, they document that eight people are killed daily, that every week 182 churches are destroyed, 309 people week or monthly are imprisoned falsely. When I talk about persecution, I'm talking about people being harassed, beaten, imprisoned, having their property taken from them or destroyed, losing their life at cruel ways like beheading. People are facing restrictions and they're being denied their religious liberties. They don't have access to the Bible or other Christian literature or they're not even permitted to gather for worship. They're living in countries where anti-Christian laws and governments sanction circumstances like these. You can read about stories of people all over the world who are facing persecution, and I would encourage you to do so. Voice of the Martyrs is an organization that really speaks to martyrdom in our day, and they have a website called www.persecution.com. You can read stories of people who are facing persecution, but even better than that, you can begin to pray. They have a ton of resources available to help us pray specifically for those people and also the countries they're living in. I want to make sure that we recognize that the persecution that I'm talking about is not as light as like being made fun of because you pray before your meals or because you go to church. It's not the same as like not being asked to hang out with some friends after work because they know you're one of those Jesus people. It's not getting a bad grade on your paper because you chose to take a biblical stance. It's not even getting fired for your job because you're too religious at the workplace. It's not getting a hateful word back from one of your high school friends when you post something biblical on social media. It's not even being asked by our governor to stop worshiping with public services because of COVID-19. It's not even the virus itself, as some people want to believe. Not every affliction that comes into our life is persecution. And I would be correct to say that we here in the West, we here in North America, have really never faced true persecution. But Jesus warned that it would happen. He says in verse 4 of chapter 16, when it comes, when the time comes. And he's paralleling that with the time that's about ready to come in his life, where he's going to be falsely accused, arrested, beaten, crucified, and killed. You know, Paul went from being the persecutor to being the persecuted. And he warns us in 2 Timothy 3.12, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It might be a fair assumption to think that if you're not facing some type of persecution, it could be correlated to the life that you're living. Maybe the life we're living isn't as close to the godly life in Christ Jesus we're called to live. You know, we might not all face the same persecution, but we should all face the same reason for persecution. And that's an uncompromising devotion to Jesus Christ. 
Jesus says, I'm warning you that persecution is going to come, and I don't want you to go astray when it happens. Stand firm, stand strong in the power of the Holy Spirit and give testimony about me. Jesus throughout the Gospels is recorded lots of instructions about how to deal with persecution that we might face. Let me share some words from recorded by Matthew, Matthew chapter 10. Be on your guard, Jesus says. You'll be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, they will be brought, you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. When they arrest you, do not worry about what you will say or how to say it. At that time, you'll be given what to say, for it would not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. The student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Whoever acknowledges me before others, Jesus says, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Pastor and author Tom Askell visited China, where the persecution against Christ's followers and the church has been rampant for many years. And there he met Pastor Samuel Lamb, who spent 20 years in a communist prison for preaching the gospel about Jesus. And he asked Pastor Lamb, what's the difference between persecution in your country and persecution in the country that I come from, America? And Pastor Lamb said this, in America, the church has experienced prosperity and it's growing weaker. In China, the church has experienced persecution and it's growing stronger. Persecution is much better than prosperity. Someone actually said that in China, going to jail is like going to seminary. Your heart becomes prepared and equipped to do the Lord's work by being confined into a prison cell. You know, instead of fearing or avoiding it, you and I should adopt a, 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 an expectation for persecution. We should embrace it. We should revel in it because Jesus says we are blessed when we're persecuted. You remember his words from Matthew 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, Jesus says, when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. When you and I decide to live and to love like Jesus, we should expect people to not understand, agree, support, or even celebrate that decision. Jesus says, People will hate you because of me. So the question is, how do we respond? Do we just stand around offended like the rest of the world for this? Oh, I don't think so. In fact, neither does Brant Hansen. He wrote a book called Unoffendable. Listen to what he says about the posture you and I should take as Christ followers in not being offended all the time. He says this. I used to think it was incumbent upon a Christian to take offense. I now think we should be the most refreshingly unoffendable people on a planet that seems to spin on the axis of offense. We should forfeit our rights to be offended. That means forfeiting our rights to hold on to anger. When we do this, we'll be making a sacrifice that's pleasing to God. It strikes at our very pride. It forces us to not only think about humility, but to actually be humble. 
Forfeiting our rights to anger makes us deny ourselves and makes us others-centered. When we start living this way, it changes everything. Choosing to be unoffendable means choosing to be humble. Once you've decided you can't control other people, once you've reconciled yourself to the fact that the world, its people are broken, once you've realized that your own moral failures before God, once you've abandoned the idea that your, insignif- or that your significance comes from anything other than God, then you're finally growing in humility. And that's exactly where God wants us all. It's contrary to seemingly everything in our culture. But the more we divest ourselves of ourselves, the better our lives get. And Jesus told us as much. He said, if we give up our lives for his sake, we'll find real life. You and I need to recognize and rest in who Jesus is, our teacher, our savior, our Lord. We must follow him and stay connected to him, trust him and emulate him. And we're not left to do this on our own. He promised and has now given us the Holy Spirit, our counselor, our advocate, our helper. And we can rely on him and the work in our lives to conform us to the image of Jesus and empower us to live and to love like him. And we can stand strong in the face of opposition and persecution. We can be characterized by boldness, by courage, by humility. We're going to see just how Jesus lived this out in the next couple of chapters because we're going to see him arrested, falsely accused, beaten, stripped naked, crucified, mocked, killed. And as all that happened, what was Jesus' response? It was to love. It was to forgive. And it was to be steadfast committed to the call of God on his life. One of my favorite scenes in the Passion of the Christ movie, it's even hard to describe as favorite, is that moment where Jesus is in the praetorium. He's being scourged. They first took out rods and they beat his back. They picked up a whip and beat him as he's strapped to a pole about this high, handcuffed to the pole. And every time he fell to the ground, what did Jesus do? He climbed back up and offered his back again. That's a powerful example for you and I to follow in the face of persecution. And I think that's why the Hebrew writer wrote these words in Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You know, each week as a community of faith, we choose to celebrate communion because we never want to forget what Jesus did for us by dying on the cross for us and by resurrecting from the grave. His death and his resurrection should motivate us to live and to love like him. And we should receive his grace and mercy for those times where we don't. But we also should rest in his strength and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to do it. In light of what Jesus has told us today about persecution and how to stand strong in the power of the Holy Spirit, I want us to focus our thoughts and minds on some words found in 2 Corinthians. And they, they should prepare us as we celebrate what Jesus did on our behalf and think about how to follow his example. Check out these words. Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. 
We're hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. We're struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Christ so that the life of Christ may be revealed in our body. I pray that you'll focus on those words as we celebrate communion tonight. Use these quiet moments to thank Jesus for how he lived and how he loved and ask him to let the Holy Spirit fill you to a place that you can follow his example. And when you're ready, you can celebrate Jesus.